0: Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear now God's Word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and you shall... Teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And thus far the reading of God's Word and all God's people said, Amen. Today's subject for our Foundations series is Christian Education. It's a touchy subject because, like many others, other things in the Bible, God's instructions are both clear and demanding, which also means they're hard. Following the Lord in this is expensive in several ways but not nearly as expensive as not following him. Moreover, it's possible to have a form of Christian education, like a form of godliness, while denying its power. It's possible for us to engage in an outward activity and still miss the point. And so, while I know that most of the people in this room have been or are currently actively engaged in some form of Christian education, I especially want to challenge you today to listen. To listen carefully to what God says about it, and to evaluate whether this is actually what's happening in your home and with your child's education. And so let's begin with an exposition of our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a famous text, and it opens with with the words Shema, is how it's pronounced, which means to hear or to listen. In fact, this passage came simply to be referred to as the Shema of Israel. It's a a very central passage in the history of Israel. The starting point of what follows is, is a simple but profound declaration. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Literally, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. This one God has a name, His name is Yahweh, and He is our God. The name Yahweh is repeated twice. There, there are not multiple gods, no, uh, there is no polytheism, we are not choosing among many options. America might be polytheistic and pluralistic, but we are not. The closing emphasis is that Yahweh is one. Now that, that is that he's not only one God and his name is Yahweh, but neither is he divided. He is a trinity of persons, as we learn elsewhere in Scripture But one of his chief attributes is his unity. There's no division in God. And this is our starting place. Our first and most basic belief and presupposition. And if if we grasp this, it will have a profound effect on our philosophy of education. He... Is our ultimate authority. From this foundation, from this starting point, flow all the issues of life. The first of the Ten Commandments establishes this truth. It says, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and you shall have no other gods before me. Is that clear? It's at the very top of the list. In Martin Luther's famous hymn, he has a line that says, And though this world with devils filled, but we could also say, And though this world with gods filled. And so this foundational issue must be clear and foremost in our minds. If God is one, then it stands to reason. That we live in a universe, that is, a unified cosmos, all of creation, and therefore, all truth, all truth is found in this one God. To acknowledge this God is to repudiate all other gods.
1: Yahweh is
0: the sovereign over all beings, over all creation, and is therefore the very foundation of all true education. Proverbs tells us that the fear of Yahweh is both the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature, and everything is a creature. Everyone is a creature. No creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So when this one true God, Yahweh, speaks, as this passage opens, Shema, we better listen. Are you listening? Listen up, it says. Now Israel was about to face many temptations to go after other gods, just as we are tempted to do likewise. The only solution to this temptation, as the text says, is to love Yahweh, our God, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. Now we tend to think of love primarily in emotional terms, but Moses has something much bigger in mind here. He says that the only proper response to this one true God is total, unreserved Dedication. Total unreserved dedication with all your heart. That is, the inner parts, the mind, the understanding. With all of your soul and with all of your strength. Notice the requirement for each of us is all. Total dedication, without reservation, complete resolve, not double minded The word translated heart here really has reference to thinking things through or forming attitudes or making decisions. In other words, your total loyalty to Yahweh in every matter of life is what God requires. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. If Christ, as the Apostle Peter says, has indeed been sanctified, set apart as the Lord, as the King, as the boss of me, then indeed, every other matter flows from that epicenter. All of our energy and effort will be focused here. Further down in our Deuteronomy passage, Deuteronomy 6, verse 13 adds, And you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him. You shall fear Yahweh and serve him. Period. Crystal clear. What does God want? What does God require? What can I do to please him? That's the question. That's the the only question. We cannot dismiss Yahweh without severe consequences. And so we will see that there is a vast difference between an education that fears the one true God and an education that diminishes or disregards that foundational truth. He will not settle for second 3rd or 10th place in in your world. Now with the foundation established, what does that look like at your house? What does that look like when it comes to the education of your children? Well, it starts with you, fathers and mothers. What does it say in the text? And these words, God's words, which I command you today, shall be in... Your hearts. That's the starting place. That's how we'll know. You can't possibly do what God has called you to do if you don't have God's Word in your innermost being. Your children will likely not be able to rise above you. And so, as I turn to say a few things about the necessity of a Christian education it is essential to understand a few more critical foundation things from our text. Genuine Christian education begins with genuine Christian parents. And I don't simply mean parents that are going to heaven when they die. I mean parents who love Yahweh with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't blame the school or the curriculum or your child's other teachers if you have not already clearly established this foundational principle in your own life and in your own home. You, parents, are always your child's primary teacher. How are your students doing? God places the responsibility and duty squarely with you. Schools and curriculums can help, but they cannot replace parents who single-mindedly love God and His standards. Christian education is a 24-7 proposition. Your children are receiving an education every single day, every single hour. It is only a matter of the question of what kind of education are they receiving. And the best school in the world cannot make up for the deficit of double-minded or half-hearted parents. Do you know and do your children know that you know that there's only one God? Only one authority? And that you are totally dedicated to implementing His Word in your marriage and in your family? Do they know that you know that? How would they know? If you get this right, then you can begin to make use of schools and teachers and and curriculums to assist you and your children. One of the ways we can know that we in fact love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength is seen in what the next few verses say. True faith, true belief is always demonstrated by swift obedience. So here's the core of a genuinely Christian education starting at your house. You, parents, shall teach them, that is your children, excuse me, you shall teach them, that is God's words, diligently, diligently to your children. Let's just pause there and think for a moment. Am I? Diligently teaching God's Word to, to my children. Am I doing it? Not as the church doing it, not as the school doing it. Am I doing that? You shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, God's word is the only and ultimate authority at your house, in your marriage, and regarding every subject. God's Word permeates every aspect of your home life. It's part of your everyday conversation. It occupies a dominant place in your house. Not just a book up on the shelf. Not just something that's occasionally read or referred to. You are your child's primary teacher and it's critical that they see you Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength every day, all the time, and in all kinds of situations. That's how it will become real to them. I know you love your children. I know you're concerned about it. But if you really want to know the single most important thing you can do to affect the outcome of your child's love for God, is to make sure they see you loving God in every situation. Even when it's costly. Especially when it's costly. Now another consideration. Are you concerned about the direction of our culture? where do you think our culture is coming from? Education is the primary means whereby our culture is produced. Education in the home, the church, the school... How a culture acts cannot be separated from education as a man thinks in his heart. So is he. To the degree that the home, the church, and the school are distinctively Christian in their worldview, and thereby their teaching, the culture will be more or less Christian or anti-Christian. From this launching pad, we can now turn to talk about the role of schools. Homeschools, Christian day schools, online schools, and public schools. Since we've already established the clear necessity of total dedication to the one true God, then we also are ready to know what's essential for a proper Christian education. All education must be Christian at its core. This is absolutely necessary. Necessary, as in, no other options. Christian, as in, distinctively and thoroughly biblical. Anything less is disobedience and sin. Therefore, anything less must be repented of. Now, the obvious foil here are the public or government schools. They're not only not Christian, they're positively anti-Christian by law. Now, please listen carefully to the next thing I'm going to say. I know that I just said a mouthful. Maybe, I would assume many of us would be uneasy with what I just said. I know that in our part of the world there are many Christian administrators, teachers, and students in the public schools. But it would be a grave mistake to think that this, is, that this even comes close what God requires in regard to a biblical education. I am grateful for Christian influences wherever they can be found, just as I am grateful for missionaries in pagan lands. But we must not be deceived into thinking that the pagan lands are Christian. I am not attacking the good intentions of many who are in these schools. But I am challenging them to rethink what God has called us to do with our children. I acknowledge that there are some complications and that there are special circumstances. The point of this sermon is to lay a foundation biblically, philosophically, and principally. I'd be happy to entertain particular circumstances and situations. To discuss, so I'm not naive about that. Nevertheless, even where government schools have teachers who are Christians, a distinctively Christian education is impossible. Why? Because God depend- demands total loyalty, all that we have, especially when it comes to the education of our children. And government education cannot even come close to being accredited by God. J. Gresham Machin, a famous Presbyterian minister at the early 20th century, observed that if you give the bureaucrats the children, you might as well just give them everything else. In the Bible Belt of the United States, we don't often encounter in the government schools the outright denial of God's existence. Yet we do routinely see that God is relegated to a position of unimportance or, worse, irrelevance in the educational process, even by teachers who profess to be Christians. Fear of what the state requires governs the classroom, And religious views are considered to be personal and therefore out of place in the public school. But the God of the Bible is the Lord of all of life, including the education of our children. To place God in a position of irrelevance in the field of education is to deny his lordship and is the functional equivalent of denying his existence. For the Christian, the situation is exactly the opposite. As Christians, we understand that life is God-centered, and we therefore seek to interpret all things in terms of the purpose that God has given in His Word. Since He is the Creator, He is the Sustainer of all things, the universe finds its very purpose and meaning only in Him. It is treason against God to hand our children over to unbelievers for the formulation of their intellectual point of view and philosophy of life and resulting spiritual condition. Let us make a comparison of beliefs. And I'm drawing much of this from uh, Cornelius Van Til and Louis Berkhoff's excellent book on Christian education, Essays on Christian Education. Here's a comparison between the unbeliever and the Christian in regard to some of these issues. Non-Christians believe that the universe has created God. They have a finite God. Christians believe that God has created the universe. They have a finite universe. Non-Christians have no desire to bring the child face-to-face with God. They want to bring the child face-to-face with the universe. Non-Christian education is godless education. What is often of first importance to us in education is the very thing that is absolutely indispensable to us is left out entirely by the unbeliever. Non-Christian education ignores or denies that man was created and is responsible to God This implies that sin is not really a transgression of God's law. Therefore, Christ did not need to die in our place. Non-Christian education is therefore anti-Christian education. It is humanistic or man-centered education. If man does not need to live for God, he may live for himself. Therefore, if we desire a God-centered education, a truly Christian education we will have to break away completely from the educational philosophy of our day. Non-Christians believe that man is surrounded by an absolutely unknowable universe. In other words, he can't know anything for sure since he's finite or limited. Man is grasping in the darkness except for the little headlight that he has that is his own mind. Christians believe that man originally lived in the light of the revelation of God and that in Christ and by scripture man is in principle restored to that true light of God. Non-Christians education, non-Christian education dashes this way and that way under the delusion that it has pierced the darkness or else it stops altogether in utter despair. As Dr. Van Til remarked, often non-Christians do away with the idea of a definite aim or purpose in education altogether. They talk of functional adjustment or, or uh, functional adjustment to environment, but if a man does not know the road and drives in the mist, why should he step on the gas? As Christians, we know the purpose of education, we also know what should be the content of education. And we know that a distinctively Christian method is to be used in the instruction of a distinctively Christian content. Non-Christians believe that insofar as man knows anything, he knows it apart from God. He sees man's mind like an oil lamp rather than an electric light bulb carrying its own supply of energy. Christians believe that everything is dark unless the current of God's revelation is turned on. Non-Christians believe that the personality of the child can develop best if it is not placed face-to-face with God. Christians believe that the child's personality cannot develop at all unless it is placed face-to-face with God. Non-Christian education puts the child in a vacuum where he's expected to grow, and as a result he dies, Christian education alone really nurtures personality because it alone gives the child air and food. That is, the environment he was created to live in. Non-Christians believe that authority hurts the growth of the child. So we have such things as values clarification. Everybody figuring out what's right and wrong all by themselves. Christians believe that without authority the child cannot live by, at all because man lives not by bread alone alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Non-Christians do speak of the authority of the expert, but that's not really authority. Christians want authority that's based on the idea of God as man's creator and of Christ as man's redeemer. We need to become more conscious of these basic distinctions. Unless we're conscious of them, and we will never have a genuinely distinctive Christian education. Again, Van Til said, to be conscious of these distinctions does not mean that we must spend much more time on the direct teaching of religion than on teaching other matters. If we teach religion indirectly, everywhere and always, we will need less time to teach religion directly. We see then that the antithesis between belief and unbelief Touches every aspect of education. To try to maintain the distinction at one point while ignoring it at another is a waste of time, energy, and money, and we cannot afford this. Christians have often been driven into thinking there's really such a thing as a religiously neutral education. You don't think that, do you? You know that's impossible, right? Right? Again, Van Til says, there has been thought that religion is a condiment that may be added to the otherwise neutral territories of life. Leaving God out is not neutral. It is opposition to Christ. If you are not for me, he said, you are against me. If we are not positively and boldly for Christ in the education of our children, then we are according to Christ himself, in support of a positively anti-Christian education. 19th century Presbyterian theologian Robert L. Dabney noted, the instructor has to teach history, cosmology, psychology, ethics, the laws of nations. How can he do it without saying anything favorable or unfavorable about the beliefs of evangelical Christians, Catholics, Socinians, Deists, Pantheists, Materialists, or fetish worshippers all, who all claim equal rights under the American institutions. His teaching will indeed be the play of Hamlet with a part of Hamlet omitted. We must reject this tendency to falsely assume that much of education is neutral and that God is therefore irrelevant. Leave God Outside, You can do that at home. You can do that on weekends. You can do that on Sundays. Don't bring that here. We have more important work to do. What does God have to do with math and science or literature or history, much less music and PE? Of course, he has everything to do with these things, and to attempt to leave him out is the first step down a long, slippery slope. I've read this story, a brief story before, by Dr. Clarence Carson, who's an economist, and he said, some years back I received a call from a young man who asked me to come speak to a group of students. What he wanted me to do was to restrict myself to economic matters, if I would, he said. Specifically, he wanted me to leave God out of it, though he must have put it more circumspectly than that. It seems that this group was composed of what he called... Thomas and Randians, and the religious issue would surely divide them. I sent my condolences, but declined the invitation. One suspects that the young man supposes that God is like a domestic pet, a cat, say, which one trots out to show cat lovers, but when guests arrive who are allergic to cats is put away out of sight until they leave. It is not that way at all. Without God, the belief in economics is idolatry. God is my premise and my conclusion. The first words of Genesis put the matter clearly. In the beginning, God. And as the book of Revelation moves to its conclusion, there are these words. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, There is no God to be trotted out for God-fanciers. He is God, the ground of all being. How could I speak and leave God out? Now, Christian day schools and home schools are not exempt, since many fall short of being distinctively Christian and thoroughly biblical. This is true both in content, quality, and culture. Classical Christian education is one method, but method may not ever be allowed to trump the fundamental commitment to genuinely Christian education. I don't care how many academic awards we win. Listen, this statement if we fail, To produce godly young people who love the one true God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we have utterly failed. That ought to be the final test of any education. To fail here is to fail everywhere. All other trophies and awards will mean nothing. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And so we must be sure that our philosophy and content is always thoroughly Christian and that our methods are consistent with biblical methods. This is essential, not optional. We tend to think of the purpose of education in terms of equipping our children for jobs rather than equipping them for service in God's kingdom. The Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. True success and prosperity. Just think of what the Bible says. This book of the law, the Bible, shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Then thou shalt have good success. Psalm 1, 2 and 3. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law does he meditate day and night, and he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also will not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. Psalm one nineteen ninety nine. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For your testimonies, your word is my meditation. Second Peter one five through nine. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self control, to self control perseverance. To perseverance, godliness. To godliness, brotherly kindness. And brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. If we fail to keep God's place God in the place where He belongs, that is, at the very tip-top of our priorities, then He has a way of draining our prosperity. In Haggai chapter 1, verse 6, God says, You've sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages... Remember those jobs we were training him for? Earnings. uh, He earns wages to put into a bag with holes. So, in conclusion, it is absolutely foundational for us to be fully dedicated to the one true and living God. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the the necessary fruit of that will be the diligent education of our children all the time in the light of God's ultimate authority and word. Every Christian parent and Christian educator must come to grips with this point. And so, in closing, I want to give two longer quotes from Dr. Van Til. I've used them before, but they're just so good, I want to hear them again. And anyone who comes to grip with this at all will sense the impossibility of thinking of Christian education as being 90 or 60 or 30 or 10% like other education, the only difference being that Christian education adds certain elements or emphasizes certain elements that secular education neglects. When viewed from this absolute standpoint, Christian education is not even a fraction of 1% like public education. The different conceptions of God that underlie the two educational theories cover every point on the whole front and covers them before and behind, without and within. This, then, is the point. The war between Christ and Satan is a global war. It is carried on first in the hearts of men for the hearts of men, through preaching and teaching in the church and in the home, through the witness Born individual men everywhere, the allegiance of men is turned away from Satan to Christ. But the warfare is also carried on where you might least expect it. It is carried on in the field of reading and writing and arithmetic, in the field of nature study and history. At every point, Satan seeks boys and girls as well as men and women to take the attitude that he got Eve and Adam to take at the very beginning of history. Everywhere and at every point, Satan's theme song is, let's be broad-minded. At the beginning of our research, your hypothesis about God's creating and directing the course of history is as good as mine, and mine is as good as yours. Now let's be open-minded and find out from the facts whose hypothesis really fits. And now the reason why... We are willing as Christian believers in general and as Christian parents in particular to sacrifice so largely for the sake of having Christian schools is that we want our children with us to see the vision of the all conquering Christ as he rests the culture of mankind away from Satan and brings it to its consummation when the new heavens and the new earth on which righteousness shall dwell at last appears. There is not a square inch of ground in heaven or on earth or under the earth in which there is peace between Christ and Satan. And what is all important for us as we think of the Christian school is that according to Christ, every man, woman, and child is every day and everywhere engaged in the struggle. No one can stand back refusing to become involved. He is involved from the day of his birth and even before his birth. Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. If you say that you're not involved, you are in fact involved on Satan's side. If you say you're involved in the struggle between Christ and Satan in the area of the family and in the church, but not in the school, you are deceiving yourself. In that case, you are not really fully involved in the family and in the church. You cannot expect to train intelligent, well-informed soldiers of the cross of Christ unless the Christ is held up before them as the Lord of culture as well as the Lord of religion. It is of the nature of the conflict between Christ and Satan to be all-comprehensive. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of these, our children. As you have entrusted them to us, so too we have committed them to you. We are grateful for all those who have instructed them in the way of righteousness and assisted in their preparation for service to you, their families, their churches, and the world. We appreciate the men and women who have sacrificed as their teachers and ask that you continue to bless that work for your own glory and good and the good of those involved. We now call upon you, O Lord, to go before us and to make our paths straight that we might continue to equip our children for your service and to make them a blessing to all. May the children also have grateful hearts toward you and their parents and teachers for the blessing of a godly Christian education. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua 24.15 And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will serve Yahweh. Biblical Christianity is radical. It's possible to be a fanatic in an unbiblical sense, but real Christianity demands total submission to the Word of God. Jesus was a radical. It cost him his life. The apostles were radicals. They turned the world upside down. God said that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so... Have you made friends with the world when it comes to the education of your children at any point? Here are just a few more thoughts from R.L. Dabney. As a man, it is presumable he will act as he was taught while a boy. Of course, then the grounds of obligation employed with him in school should be the ones he, he is to recognize in adult life. In the state school, a non-Christian standard alone could be given to him. He cannot be expected now to rise to any better. He may sink to a lower. Seeing the ground then given him had no foundation under it. In fact, Americans, taken as we find them, who do not get their moral restraints from the Bible, have none. If, in our moral training of the young, we let go that thus say, saith the Lord... We shall have no holds left. <clears throat> the training which does not base duty on Christianity is, for us, <clears throat> practically immoral. And one more. No parent can fail to res- resent with righteous indignation the intrusion of any authority between his conscience and convictions and the soul of his child. If the father conscientiously believes that his own creed is true and righteous and obligatory before God, then he must intuitively regard the intrusion of any power between him and his minor child to cause the rejection of that creed, a usurpation. When Jesus was asked by a lawyer, What is the greatest commandment? He simply said, Quoting from Deuteronomy, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind." And so we come to the Lord's table to renew that very commitment in ourselves before God, He who loved us first, and now we love Him back. Amen. Amen. O oh Lord, we know that in order to effectively teach Your law, uh, we must first it must first be upon our own hearts. May your word be such a part of us in our own lives that our teaching of our children and others will be a natural outflow of the truth. May your commands be our daily meditation ever before us, that we think of them often and apply them to every situation we encounter. May our children grow up seeing how important your word is to us, and may they know it and love it from childhood. Give them wisdom to apply your word to their own hearts And may the Gospel be the most natural subject of conversation in our homes. And may our children grow to maturity as they imitate our love and faithfulness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us an everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen. Thank